welcome to a, another edition of Two Steps Ahead Podcast. Two Steps Ahead Podcast, encouraging you to take your passion, make it happen, and let yourself be great. I'm Son Edom, and coming up on the show, we've got a very special guest that we're going to be talking to. In fact, you probably see him on the screen already. Now, before we get to him, we're going to, we're going to let him actually kind of give us the information. But what we're going to start out talking about is 2021 is the 100th year of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. If you don't know what the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is, then you're in the right spot because you're going to find out about it. And uh, Ethan Morris is my guest. And, and Ethan, you actually are, you stood post at the tomb, but you are forever a tomb guard. So as we start off, could you maybe, I know one of the requirements is as a new member of the uh, of the old guard, as they say, is to learn the history of the tomb. So I thought maybe instead of me sharing the history, you could give us uh, your wisdom as to what the tomb is, what it represents for people that don't know what it is, uh, let them know what it is. Yeah, thank you so much, Son, for having me on here today. And, um, you know, your intro, of course, reminded me of the fact that we really should be living every single day to the best of our ability. And um, I oftentimes don't do that. But in 2003, um, I enlisted in the United States Army, and I had asked my recruiter if I could go to the place in Arlington National Cemetery that's right outside Washington, D.C., called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And my recruiter said, there's no way that I could go there. Don't worry about it. And um, I then said, that's fine. I will join up as an infantry paratrooper. Um, But God had other plans. And from infantry school, I got recruited to Arlington National Cemetery, which is a huge honor. So to those of you who don't know, um, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier dates back to 1921. And it was to celebrate that we won, um, well, it was A, to a place for mourning for all the fallen from World War I. But it was also to commemorate and celebrate that we won World War I which was um, entitled, you know, the Great War or the War to End All Wars. So we were very, you know, proud and happy. Um, There was a lot of um, unknown soldiers who were obliterated, sadly, over in um, Europe. So there's no place for um, their family members to go and actually mourn. So England and France had started a Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, um, France at the Arc de Trump and um, England at Westminster Abbey. And we were kind of looking at that and thinking that we should start a place like that as well. So um, we commemorated. Um, it took us a while, as it does sometimes in Congress, to do anything. But um, in, by the time, because the war ended in 1918 and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier was dedicated and opened, commemorated in 1921. And and again, kind of the history, there was five major battles that America participated in in Europe um, during World War One. I. I mean, and some of those battles lasted months on end, almost a year long, you know, horrific battles when you think about it. But um, what they did is they, they chose five unknown soldiers or sailors, Marines, Air Force, you know, whoever they were. We didn't have the Air Force at that time, but Marines. Um, they found unknown Americans from that battlefield. They ended up bringing them into the USS Olympia, um, one basket team at a time in a solemn ceremony. And they were kind of like moved around within the, um, the ship, the USS Olympia. And then from there, um, Sergeant um, Edward F. Younger, he went down and he had a wreath, kind of like if you ever see a wreath laying ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, what he had, he had a wreath and it was his job to go down 
And now the, the, um, the, the caskets were moved around. Nobody knew which casket came from which battlefield. So now they literally did represent all the battles. And then he chose um, the casket that then became interred at Arlington National Cemetery. Now, is it true that they've since been able to, well, since World War I, then World War II added another soldier that was unknown, and then Korean War, and then the Vietnam War, and so forth? Yes, yeah. So the history there at Arlington National Cemetery is you have the, originally in World War I, it was just like a tabletop um, memorial. And then over time, they realized that it needs to be a little more impressive, and they put a 79,000-pound um, marble um marker on top of the tabletop of the tomb of the unknown soldier and that is over the world war one unknown well then world war ii happened we were shocked you know like again we thought we already beat the germans the and the war to end all wars and now here we were in world war ii so um we dedicated so much time to fighting that war that by the end we were fatigued 1945 and then by 1951, just six short years later, the Korean War started. So we didn't even have a, um, a time, a chance to dedicate a World War One, or a, I'm sorry, a World War II unknown. So then we fought the Korean War um, quite hard and fast for a few years from about 51 to 53. We're still in Korea. Um, there's just kind of a ceasefire there. But then after that, in the mid 50s, um, they were able, to, we were able to regroup as a country. And we realized that there were so many unknown soldiers from both of those wars that we did a double internment, it's called. So we did a double internment, one um, soldier representing the World War II unknowns, one soldier representing the Korean War unknowns, and those were put out in two little crypts. They're not little, but two crypts um, in front of the World War I unknown. So we have actually three unknowns there at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Fast forward a few years, and Vietnam reared its ugly head. We fought there for over 10 years from the late 60s to the late 70s, lost over 50,000 soldiers. It was very political within our culture, and unlike anything today, as we know. And um, we, there ended up being a need for a Vietnam unknown soldier. There wasn't that many that were unidentified during the Vietnam War, and it was kind of a controversial um, choosing because to be an unknown, you, there, you can't ever have any records around you. And unfortunately, some of the Vietnam soldiers, they were identified by this would be one of these 100 men, which technically that's known, even if you don't know who he was. So as soon as that happened in the late 70s, um, the families started petitioning Congress to disinter him um, or the body that was buried there, at the Vietnam unknown. And in 1998, I mean, when you think about it, just almost 20, uh, just over 20 years ago, they disinterred um, the unknown from Vietnam and they were able to easily identify him because he was going to be one of two soldiers. And he was identified as First Lieutenant Michael J. Blassie. His family is from Missouri and they wanted him sent home to their um, national cemetery near them. So he was um, in a wonderful and honorable ceremony. And there is no, and this is good news, there is no unknown to take that spot in the Vietnam um, crypt. So we've just left it empty because so many men did die over in Vietnam. Um, and then they inscripted in, in it with a wonderful inscription honoring and dedicating all the, um, the fallen mi military of Vietnam. 
I was able to go there back, I think it was 1985, and see the changing of the guard and, and see the tomb, visit Arlington, you know, the eternal flame. And it's really, I don't know if you want to say awe-inspiring. I don't, I don't know what the right words are because you have loss of life. But then in that loss of life, you see just the sacrifices that were made. You see the fact that these people are being honored in the, in the highest respect possible. And so it's really awe-inspiring. So anybody that hasn't been there... Um, if you go to Washington, D.C., should definitely be on the, on the places to go because it really is a fascinating place. And watching the changing of the guard as well is pretty phenomenal ceremony. What made you decide or want to be a tomb guard? Well, I had seen it. I mean, you mentioned that you went there in the 80s. Um, and, and what's interesting is not much has changed. Um, over the decades that people have been there. And I'm honored that I earned badge 548 and I'm just a small link in the chain of men and women that have stood guard there at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, I visited there right after 9-11. As a civilian, um, I was 19 years old. I was filming a movie on the East Coast um, called Gods and Generals. It was a Civil War movie. And I was so happy, but then 9-11 happened. And we didn't even know what was happening. Um, we were just found out that we were attacked. And a month later, around um, Veterans Day 20, or 2001, um, my manager said, hey, let's go to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And I, I actually didn't know anything about it. So um, I accepted. I was very excited. Like you said, there's something. It's hard to put your, you know, kind of your, your finger on it because, you know, a lot of us maybe haven't served in the military. We haven't lost someone. My grandfather was over in um, World War II in the European theater. He was a civil engineer, never actually saw combat. He um, built all the bridges for Patton's army to take, you know, to, to win the war. You know, huge history, but yet I didn't lose somebody to World War II. Um, so I visited there in 2001, and I was just amazed. And there was something in my heart that said, this is for you. And I remember asking my recruiter, because because of 9-11, I wanted to enlist in the Army. And I'd ask my recruiter, and he said, you can't go here. You can't serve. We don't recruit to Arlington National Cemetery. So it was always in my heart, and, and there was something there. Um, but I didn't even know really why or, or what. And then at Fort Benning, Georgia, where I was going to infantry school and parachuting school, airborne school, um, I ended up getting recruited out of 500 guys. They recruited about 10 of us to go to Arlington. Um, usually, I mean, we don't know why. Um, it, they say it's due to our test scores. I think it's probably due to my good looks. Um, but they'll, they'll deny all of that. And, and my test scores weren't that high. So I, I doubt that was the reason, too. But either way, <laughs> either way, I got recruited to Arlington. I, my, I did ask the recruiter, could I serve at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? He said, I doubt it. That's not how it works. We're recruiting to go serve in Arlington National Cemetery. And um, if you do well there, then you can volunteer at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So I did volunteer. I ended up getting assigned to a casket team. I did over 300 burials in Arlington from 2004 to 2005. And then um, from there, was able to actually volunteer, or, um, serve in President Ronald Reagan's funeral, um, not as a casket bearer, but as um, the marching element. If you watch the, um, the marching through the Capitol, there's a lot of pomp and circumstances with the military station in D.C. And then from there, I was able to eventually volunteer at the tomb where I earned badge 548. Now, when you first become a guard member, a member of the squad, 
what is it that you have to go through? I know there's significant training because I've seen one of the things that drew me to, okay, so I was there in 85 and saw the tomb. And back then there wasn't the internet. So you couldn't really see all the stuff that we can today go online and Google search anything and it pops up. And so I just had to relive the experience through pictures that I took and um, I still have them today. And so I keep them because it's a special, it was a special trip uh, going and seeing that uh, one of the best things I've ever done. One of the most remembered things, uh, memorial things I've ever done. But um, so there wasn't a way to go back and then, you know, bring up YouTube and watch videos and stuff like that. And so we um, didn't really know much about it, except maybe what was told to us in the encyclopedia, uh, encyclopedia Britannica or something like that. Um, yeah. But since then I've seen, you know, a lot of videos, watch documentaries. I know you put out a documentary one time and, and that's just phenomenal. The, the behind the scenes look at what goes on with you guys when you're there. But what's the first thing that you guys have to do when you're getting trained to be a guard? The, the first thing is you, you have to volunteer because it is a, a volunteer mission and you have to have something in your heart that says, I want to go work harder than everybody else that's here that anybody else has done and do it for months without any thanks months without even being seen because it's not about us. And through that experience, you start to learn um, kind of the dedication that it's going to take to be a tomb guard. So it's initially it's a first two week um, kind of um, fire hose drinking from a fire hose experience where you're memorizing about 10 pages of knowledge, um, which you have to memorize um, word for word. You have to memorize the whole ceremony outside, which people see, but that ceremony happens every 30 minutes during the summertime and every hour during the wintertime. Um, so you have to memorize that perfectly within um, two weeks. And then you also have to practice and um, work on your uniform. So that's the first initial, I mean, and you're working long hours, long days, just to just try to absorb it all. Well, from there, you take a test. If you do well, you're offered, hey, do you want to come down here to the tomb? You, we would like you down here. If you agree to that, you're assigned a, a squad, a relief. So then I was assigned to um, third relief. Those are the short, handsome soldiers. Um, first relief are the tall, kind of ugly soldiers. Anybody 6'2 and above, um, they're over there. The um, <laughs> Third relief is like basically 5'10 to 6 feet. We're, we're little midgets. Uh, they like to call us the tabletop models, but we... Um, we're still, we just still the guard. So we, um, we get assigned to a relief. It took me about three to four months to be good enough to go outside and guard. And during that time, you're questioning everything of why you're even there. You're helping the, the successful tomb guards get out the door. You're memorizing additional knowledge. Now 15 pages, because they give you more after those two weeks. You're trying to get your uniform better. And you're practicing for over two hours a day in front of the mirror all the, the mechanics of the ceremony, as well as then practicing at night for hours. Usually I would do about six hours of guarding at night, um, pre- not all in um, one segment. It would be like two hours walking back and forth, and then I would come down for two hours. During that time, I'd be either eating dinner at 10 p.m. or cleaning the quarters, and then you'd go back out for two more hours. So all of that time, you're just learning that it's not about us. It's not about the tomb guards. And that's where it gets very embarrassing. I'm not, it's very hard to be proud that I was a tomb guard when I'm thinking about all the thousands upon thousands of dead that the tomb guards are actually there honoring and remembering. 
But it's one of those things that is, you know, required. I mean, I guess not required, but, you know, it's it's a duty. It's a duty where they need people. And I know the discipline that you were talking about. I've seen it in the documentaries and in the videos. You know, the discipline. People don't understand just what it takes. I mean, the discipline. You know, you're not watching TV. There's nothing about the news. I mean, like you said, it's all about anything but you. And in such a narcissistic world, that is just completely a different mindset. Um, yeah. So, so you're learning all this knowledge, but you guys don't say anything unless someone gets rowdy and then you remind them to respect the tomb. So what's the purpose, I guess, in learning all this knowledge? Yep. Um, so the purpose is there is about nowadays, there's about anywhere from three to five million people a year that visit Arlington National Cemetery. Um, I shouldn't tell all your listeners this, but anybody can ring the doorbell and they will answer so you can ring the doorbell of the quarters down below. Um, that usually happens because of somebody's there to lay a wreath. Um, a lot of kids from across the country lay wreaths there. Um, veteran organization um, and all sorts of organizations. You'll see um, the team that wins the you know NBA finals might go and lay a wreath, or the All Star team will go lay a wreath. The president lays a wreath on Memorial Day and Veterans Day. So, but anybody as an American has the right to ring that doorbell. So. When somebody answers, the tomb guards will answer it. Um, they'll be honest. They might be too busy to actually accommodate a tour. But if they're not too busy, if they have enough uh, staff, enough soldiers there on, on hand, they will say, oh, yeah, we'll come up to the auditorium or the memorial amphitheater and we'll give you a, a question and answer tour and a talk about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And um, at any time, they then can start sharing all the information about the history of Arlington how it was founded during the Civil War, the famous people that are buried there, and they can share it. Now, again, that doesn't happen from the mat, and nobody, you know, people don't realize that. Well, the mat, you're just sitting there walking your 21 seconds back and forth. Um, you're guarding the tomb. You've never talked to anybody, but that knowledge can be utilized anytime, as well as then um, with any sort of political um, visitors or generals who might come for a VIP tour, and they might have some questions and the tomb guards answer it. And then, of course, I, I do want to mention also that not only is there the, the good times we talk, but then oftentimes people have seen, especially since YouTube, the viral videos where people maybe disrespect the tomb or something. And oftentimes, I don't think they mean to. Um, I was there for 18 months, and I only had ever had to break my composure like three times to correct somebody. Um, one was a little rambunctious kid who actually reminded me of myself. And he was swinging on the rail that um, is, you know, is to keep the family from uh, or the, the, the visitors from. And he dropped something onto the plaza and he had already been swinging around doing his own thing. And he was having a good time. And he ended up jumping down onto the plaza to go after it. But that's disrespectful. So um, we have to come to a quick, you know, like stop in our marching, um, snap the weapon down into our our hand which is called port arms and then we break them off as we call it and i told him you know everyone will remain behind the rails and chains at all times and he ran behind the rails i think he cried his mom was mortified and i was scared because i'd only done that like twice in 18 months so i was like oh man i just ruined a kid's life and uh, but then you just have to keep marching and he was fine and stuff but there's the other time when we actually interact with them maybe he's, maybe he's a future guardman i don't know if he's a little bit like <laughs> you maybe he's a future guy 
<laughs> I do hope so. <laughs> um, no, but it's funny you mentioned that because there's, I think, on social media, one of the platforms, there's an actual channel or you know a bunch of videos where it's it's become more and more, or at least it's captured on video more and more regular people mm-hmm. kind of so-called disrespecting the tomb by doing, I've, I've seen pictures or videos of people trying to get a selfie so they cross over the barrier and they actually want to get up close yep. to take their selfie. And that's not exactly, that's the complete opposite of what you guys are doing with that uh, self-sacrifice of, of walking. So I actually only, you are completely right. And I actually only have a couple of pictures of me serving there um, that I own. I know there's been tens of thousands of pictures taken and they're spread throughout the world. But when I was there, it was from 2005 to 2006. And I personally have a handful of photos. Um, When you're in training, you're not allowed to have your family go take your picture. So some soldiers do, but my family didn't live anywhere close to, to me. So they never did that. And if they did, I would never tell the guys who were training us because, again, they're they're trying to make us realize that it's not about us. I couldn't imagine being a guard nowadays when everybody's carrying around a cell phone that can take, you know, 4K pictures, video, like, oh, hey, girl, why don't you take my picture and text it to me? Crazy. As well as then there, there is, you mentioned earlier, you can't watch TV. You know, there's a TV playing and part of the discipline because... It takes months to not ever turn your head when somebody comes at the tomb. So part of that training is when you're down below, you can't touch a certain table, the badge table. You can't sit at the badge chairs. You can't watch the badge TV. So something might be happening. And like if something major happened, let's say 9-11, which is again again before I got there, um, a sergeant would have to tell you, it's okay for you to watch the TV. This is important, you know. And then you'd be allowed to check it out. And again, with cell phones, the world has just changed, you know. Um, But because of that, a lot of soldiers don't have a lot of pictures of themselves down there. And when you think about, again, the selfie culture that we live in, if they're sitting there posting selfies saying, I'm serving at the tomb, they're probably not going to be serving there very long. So what happens if you look at the TV or maybe you violate some of those things because you're um, getting used to being trained, you know, getting that mentality and uh, focusing on what you're doing as opposed to all the distractions. So a tomb guard should be able to change from any uniform into a uniform um, to fit, to go outside within three minutes, a ceremonial uniform. So if you break those um, rules, that is a perfect time to practice dress drills, as they call them. And um, a, a drill, a, um, not a drill sergeant, but a, a badge holder will tell you, hey, you've got three minutes, go change. And um, those three-minute go changes could um, potentially last for hours upon hours upon hours until you're dripping sweat and you're sick of changing your clothes. Um, you've just changed 100 times in three. I think the longest I ever did it for was like three hours. And um, I was just dripping sweat. You, could, you had to peel off the shirt just to get it off. And it was a mess to try to put it on in three more minutes when you went to change it back. But they can, you know, three minutes change into camouflage, three minutes change into physical training uniforms, three minutes change into your blues. And then every half hour, somebody's going out the door. So then usually, even if you're doing three-minute goes, maybe after, you know, um, 10 changes, it's been 30 minutes. Now, oh, hey, Morse, help this guy get out the door looking perfect. That would be your break. 
send him out the door, hope for the best. And then you'd hear three minutes go, you know, and you go change again. So that, that's uh, the most um, useful. And, and that's actually helping for if there's an emergency, something that actually happens out there, um, which sadly does happen. Either somebody comes down sick, dehydrated, which happens in Virginia, or is injured. Um, I once, we have horseshoes under our shoes. Um, and I walked so much over the course of a year that my nails fell out. And I was halfway down the mat, and I literally threw a shoe. And I, I, you could barely walk. There's nails hanging out of your foot. And it's like, I, I didn't even know what was happening. And you can't really stop and just look down at your shoe and be like, oh, wow. So what the protocol for that is I walked to the green box that people often see. And I called down, and I said, um, I just lost one of my shoes, metal steel-plated shoe, um, horseshoes on my on my." leather sneaker or not leather sneakers, but leather um, shoes. I need somebody to replace me. My sergeant was like, you're crazy. You didn't lose a shoe. I've never heard of that before. I said, it happened. And within three minutes, somebody was coming out to replace me. And then I went down limping, you know, looking totally weird. Anybody that was there would be scratching their head thinking, what is this guy doing? And I, you couldn't even walk because my shoe was so, you know, messed up and then went downstairs and, I had another pair and swapped them out. But so those are the crazy kind of things that the dress drills help soldiers actually um, be prepared for. Okay. So you've wanted to do this. You got the opportunity, you do the training, you're the uh, third shift. And then eventually you work your way up to the point where now you're going to stand your first post. What was it like taking those first initial steps on that first post that you ever did at the tomb? The first time I went out, so I had spent about three or four months at night doing the night hours, practicing, and I was trying so hard to be the best, quote unquote. And um, I was following behind, you know, guys that were just so smooth, so talented with their weapons, talented with their uniforms, with their marching, you know, so much better than me. So the first time you get to walk usually is in the early morning or late afternoon, technically when nobody should be there. So my first walk was at 7 a.m., and I was ending at 8 a.m., and that's when the cemetery opens. So I was still quite nervous because now I was actually going to be doing a guard change because the guard change would start at 8. I would be doing a guard change from 8 to 8.10, 8.13, sometimes 8.7. Depends on how the mood of the, the sergeant who's doing the guard change is. So there's a um, cadence, a tempo of every guard change. And they can go fast, they can go slow. Those don't really matter. They're not counted by seconds. Um, so I w- was doing my first guard change in front of people, and somebody actually came. They must have came to the cemetery at 8 o'clock on the dot, came rushing up to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and they were seeing the first, you know, their guard change, first guard change of the day, and it was me. And I was so scared that my rifle was shaking because I I realized that they were thinking that they were seeing perfection. And what they were seeing is a guy in training from northern New York, a farm kid, you know, and my rifle was shaking. Literally, the the bayonet on top of the rifle sounded like it was going to fall off. And I was so nervous. And um, and that's kind of part of the training, why they do it that way. They'll they'll kind of work you into the, the, the rotation, as they call it. So you might do a 7 o'clock to 8, then you might do an 8.30 eventually, 
And as you get better, you can do more and more um, walks during the day. But I was so nervous because I couldn't believe that the people that I had watched three, four, five years ago in 2001 was now becoming me here and that somebody was watching me. And you can hear it back then, especially in the 2000s, we didn't have the quiet cell phones. People are taking their big 35 millimeter. And you could hear every picture taken. And it just was totally humbling. It really, it is a humbling experience. Because again, you know that we try to all look the same. And they might see a soldier, but they don't see the person. They don't see us. They just see a United States Army soldier. Continuing our conversation with Ethan Morse, a a guy who has spent time guarding the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And we were talking about your first initial walk that started with the park closed or the cemetery closed. And then you got to have an unexpected spectator or two because you weren't expecting anybody to be there right now. And so you get a little nervous and your bayonet's shaking. And so I guess that's to be expected your first time out. But when they're doing the change... And you're doing the uh, the changing of the guard, and the guy's inspecting everything. What is it that he's looking for, and what happens if he finds something he doesn't like? So, um, great questions. And the inspection is a real inspection that that happens. So usually it starts with the weapons inspection. Um, you present it. The weapon is usually always pristine, and um, the sergeant of the guard or the sergeant changing the guard uh, is doing a white glove. It is a real inspection opening the chamber, checking every, you know, sticking his white gloves into every um, portion of the weapon up and down. If he finds any dirt, which he never does in a perfect world, um, if he finds any dirt, he'll end up sending you back down. Now, finishing with the inspection and the changing of the guard, they will actually also give you a visual of your uniform. Sometimes things are messed up. On um, Actually, my last walk, my hat was a little crooked. I'd hit it with my weapon and um, he ended up reaching up and my sergeant reaching up and having to fix it. They'll just do those on the spot corrections right in front of you as they do a visual inspection of your uniform or if there's lint or dust that didn't get cleaned off, they'll reach up and kind of wipe it off. And then um, they'll then check, even look over the back of yours. And sorry, can you hear that? So then if you really mess up, they send the fire department to um, just wash you right off of the plaza. You're talking about that, uh, that fire hose earlier when you first yeah. get there for those two weeks. It's like, so I guess they're sending the fire hose back at you to kind of retrain you <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> yeah, if you mess up, the fire department's coming. So um, I actually, I, in my 18 months of serving at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, I never saw anybody fail an inspection. Um, except for me. I, I ended up messing up. I had just earned my badge. So we went from me being so nervous on my first walk with anybody watching to then fast forward another five, six months. I earned my badge, badge 548. I am now thinking in my head that I'm one of the best soldiers to ever walk in front of the tomb of the unknown soldier. And um, we went out there. It, it had been raining. When it rains, our weapons will almost instantly um, start rusting. Well, during the rain, we wear raincoats and we don't do a weapons inspection. It's too dangerous. If the sergeant um, changing the guard drops the weapon, he will get removed from duty at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, period. So when it rains, we don't do that. Um, There's actually a viral video that we usually don't like to talk about of a 
sergeant who dropped the weapon and it actually spiked the soldier coming on in the foot, uh, went all the way through his shoe um, and literally knifed him. Um, so it's very, it actually is a danger, you know, it's not a razor sharp bayonet, but when you're spinning it around and doing a ceremonial inspection, accidents happen. So when it rains, we don't do weapons inspection. Well, it stopped raining. And my sergeant had told me that we were going to go out and blouse, which implies that there will be a weapons inspection, which as the tomb guard should have meant that I was supposed to wipe down the weapon and clean it from any residual moisture and um, rust or, you know, dust that it accumulated during the rains. Well, I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof, even for a short little third relief guy. And um, I walked out there thinking I was the greatest and went to um, port arms, snapped the weapon up. My sergeant grabbed it from me and um, did one swipe down and his glove was all brown. And it had gotten a little rusty. I'd forgotten to clean it. One of the things that I find that's that's fascinating is you talk about the meticulousness of everything, okay? You've got the even the littlest of lints you got to brush off and you got to make sure that that is not there, the lint and stuff, as you come out. So the inspection isn't, I'm going to fix the problem. The inspection is, there shouldn't be any problem, but if there is, I'm going to be the last kind of resort to make sure that you're in tip-top shape as you then present to the uh, to the tomb. Yeah. So I pulled up my weapon to the support arms, feeling 10 foot tall and bulletproof. My sergeant grabbed it, did the one swipe and it came up all dirty and he just started breathing heavy. He was a very, um, very passionate man. Let's put it that way. He started breathing heavy, which is a little weird. Um, and he, he shortened the, the weapons inspection. And you can do that by then going to kind of like a, a reset or a, a, um, a, a point one or a, you know, a um, move one where then the soldiers know, hey, you're about to get the weapon thrown back to you. So then he tossed it back to me. I was still a little confused, put the weapon down at my side, still feeling 10 foot tall and bulletproof, but now a confused 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And um, he whispered as his protocol, this weapon is dirty, take this down um, and change it out for a clean one. And instantly, I mean, I'd never even seen it. We practice it. Every tomb guard practice. You always practice for the worst day of your life, oddly enough. So we all practice getting sent down for a mistake, but I'd never seen it. So um, I did an about face, walked down. I was back to shaking as if it was day one again. Just so confused. I was like, what is going on? Realized I'd forgotten to clean the rainy, you know, um, now surface rust weapon swapped it out, went back out. He did the, you know, the guard change, the weapon inspection posted me. And then um, I had a long day learning about the importance of, or I should say a long day and night about learning about the importance of um, cleaning a rainy weapon before you go outside and guard um, America's most humbled and um, sacred memorial. <laughs> I could only imagine what that would be like after listening to the, the changing three minutes, what it would be then cleaning the weapons. I'm sure every single weapon in the place was probably very, uh, very clean at that point. Uh, very much so. We take them apart all the time. And then um, he just has to stand there as a ceremony. Again, most people, even with YouTube, has never seen really a soldier get sent down. Um, so he's just standing there awkwardly. There might be a thousand people there wondering what in the world's happening. The guard change was supposed to happen at, you know, 1 p.m. And now it's 1.10, you know, and he's just standing there, 
you've got the guard walking back and forth on the mat. And finally I come out and yeah, that was a bad, it was an embarrassing day, but it was needful to also um, remember that, you know, I'm not 10 feet tall and bulletproof that there's actually a, a job that had to be tended to. And we had to pay attention to even the smallest details. Now you got your, your badge. Okay. So you, you do the training and there's a period of time before you get your badge. You actually have to serve time before you actually get your badge. So what was it like when you were finally awarded the badge? Um, yeah. So it's kind of on the job training there. So it took me seven months to actually earn um, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier identification badge. The soldier I got pinned with had been in training for a year, um, a, a whole 12 months. So um, he got badge 547 because he started training before me. I got badge 548. But um, the, the moment uh, so many people kind of fail or they give up on that journey because it's a long road. So I started training with um, three other soldiers. They all ended up quitting. It took too long. They decided that it really wasn't worth the effort. Um, the next class after me had 12 soldiers. Only three of them made it through. So it's roughly a quarter percent of people that try to become tomb guards get through. But then earning the badge um, felt kind of surreal because, again, it was something I'd seen years ago. And it was something I said, oh, I want to do. And then and, and I didn't talk much about the fact that I was a casket bearer for a whole year burying people in Arlington National Cemetery. I thought I would never do anything more honorable than that. Um, and my casket team also would fly to Dover, Delaware to unload fallen um, mil soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, I did about 50 of those missions. And I never thought I'd volunteer to go to the tomb. I would just, I put it beyond me. I was like, oh, I I'm only would go there for the badge because I forgot that that's where we honor all the fallen, all the unknown. Because um, at that time I was like, oh, I don't need that badge. Well, then earning the badge and realizing that I actually had learned so much about our nation and the history and the men and women who have really, I mean, not only given their lives, it's something that we flippantly say, especially around Memorial Day, maybe not flippantly, but it's easy to say, oh, thank you for your sacrifice or thank you for your, you know, grand, I'm sorry for your grandfather's loss. But then when you think about, and I've met some some people, oh, well, actually, my uncle died in a shipwreck off of the coast of Japan, and we never re recovered his body. That's the unknown soldier. They're gone. There's no, you know, not that you need a place to remember somebody's memory. Their memory will always live in our hearts. But the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier sh shows those people that our country honors their sacrifice, their loved one's sacrifice. And then by the time then I earned the badge, realizing that then I was the representation of our country's thanks was really, really awe-inspiring. When you look back at your time there, is there anything that, I mean, you've kind of been sharing all along what you've been going through, the feelings, the emotions and everything, and realizing that's not about self. It's about the, the, the tomb. It's about the soldiers that were there that were unknown. It's about everybody that sacrificed that is now laid to rest. Or like you said, everybody that might be out in the battlefield or out in the Pacific or maybe the Atlantic that was never recovered. So it's really, it's really all encompassing to military people that were lost in battle. 
But when you, when you think back and reflect upon your time there, is there anything that really kind of stands out as to, I'm so glad I stuck it out. I'm so glad I went through all that. I'm so glad that I was able to serve my time there because of this reason. Um, two things since then, um, I've been able to film with a lot of different veteran organizations across the country. Um, and I've heard multiple stories. I mean, the highlight of their usual trip to DC is the tomb of the unknown soldier. So hearing afterwards, the amount of love poured on to the tomb guards has been like medicine for my soul. Um, and then on, I think it was on my last week. It might've been on my last day. God has a way of um, blessing us when we need it. It was a very emotional day. I was a little overwhelmed that I was going to walk off the plaza for the last time. And um, while I was on the mat walking back and forth, a little old lady let, you know, leaned over and again, never supposed to talk different things, but she just whispered, thank you for your service. Um, Maybe she was talking to the unknown. Maybe she had lost somebody. I think she was talking to me. Um, I started crying on the plaza um, as I just walked back and forth, counting 21 because I knew that I had actually poured 18 months of my life into walking on that mat, wearing out that mat, wearing out shoes to, to honor these people, um, the fallen. So that, those are the things that I look back to and kind of cling to as memories. And then um, just looking back, you know, it seems like it, there's always another YouTube video or some, something that comes up where people are excited about it. And I'm just amazed that I was able to be, like I said, a, kind of a link in the long chain of, of all that our country has tried our, their best to show our fallen. Yeah, it's like you mentioned, you know, you, you kind of are a representation to people. You're like a visual representation of what it is that people are going through. It's like something tangible that they can look at and see, you know what, I might have lost a family member. Maybe it was a grandfather. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was, you know, a brother or sister. And we don't know. There's no kind of... You know, people in death like to have finality, they like to have conclusion, you know, they like to have, let's bring the body home. And like you said, it's just that final thing, that resting place. And sometimes it's not available. So you guys kind of represent that. And I think a lot of people really appreciate that more so than what we even think of today with all the videos and stuff. I think deep down, there's a lot of people that really appreciate those little things that you guys sacrificed and did and still do. Um, at the tomb and other places, you know, I mean, I can't imagine going to Dover and having to, you know, collect the caskets and then bring them to Arlington and then go through that, you know, I mean, things that people have to process the grief of a loved one being lost, but then now there's someone else there to step in and be able to be there in the final moments to make sure that there's a proper burial, make sure that things are going right, make sure that there's nothing that is missed out and that they're being honored in their death. Because yeah, like you said, we flippantly say, Hey, thank you for your service or your sacrifice. And you know, we have Memorial day and we have veterans day and that's pretty much it as far as remembering veterans, unless you're part of an organization or something, but it really is those soldiers that have fought, whether they've survived and come back or whether give the, gave their life i mean that's the reason why we have the freedoms we have today and i think that's often overlooked except on those you know special days like veterans day or memorial day and we take for granted the freedoms that we have and we don't realize that there's a complete sacrifice that has been made and a place like arlington and a place like the tomb is a a daily reminder that you know what 
there's a price that was paid because I can sit here and I can do a podcast with you and talk about it. And I don't have to worry about someone coming in on me and trying to, you know, take me off to some other place. So I don't have to go hide because of my political beliefs or my religious beliefs. I can express them freely and someone had to pay that price. And that's a visual representation of those people, I think. I, I think so. And, um, and there are millions upon millions of Americans that appreciate that and, and live their best life. And I like to encourage people. There's millions of millennial kids. Oftentimes they get a hard rap. I mean, I'm, I was born in 1982. I'm like on the cusp of, I don't know if I'm a millennial or not, but um, millennial kids, I mean, my, my um, cousin, quite liberal, volunteered like three years with um, um, FEMA and um, o- um, the Oceanic um, Institute um, for no pay. You know, like I wouldn't do anything for no pay. So yeah, I sit here and say, well, I served my country. Yeah, and I got paid for every day I showed up. You know, when I don't get paid, you know, the, the, the famous saying is if you don't pay the soldier, you're not gonna have an army very long, you know? And it's like, but yet we love the army. We love the military. We love our country, but we do it. You know, there's just some give or take. Um, but there are millennials out there that volunteer all across the world for nonprofits, for organizations. It's like there's still there, there's hope for the future is, is my point of saying that. And, and I think that oftentimes we we forget it in the oh, man, I hope that people understand the sacrifice of the past. And, and the reality is, is that I think um, there's a lot of people still sacrificing. And I'm proud of the men and women that are serving at the tomb now. They're like I said, they're going the pressures that they must have with YouTube, with Instagram, with, you know, Snapchat and all the other things. Um, And they have to put that aside for 24 hours for while they're at training to try to get through. Um, I'm proud of each and every one of them. And and, and you had also asked me about the things that meant a lot to us. Um, About 20, roughly 20 times a day, people could lay wreaths at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, You request that through Arlington National Cemetery. It's open for free for anybody. You then have to either buy a wreath or make a wreath. And um, oftentimes there, um, throughout our time there, there's wreaths and, and kids that want to lay a wreath for their school, they'll usually write essays um, to try to earn the, the honor of being the one of four. Four people can lay the wreath at the time. So if a school comes from Topeka, Kansas, there's going to be 120 kids from their eighth grade class and only four get to lay the wreath. Usually they write an essay and um, the gr- local teachers, you know, um, figure out who won. Well, then sometimes they'll bring those essays to the tomb guards and we would always read them. They would be on the badge table and um, very special because you would see little glimpses of these kids life from across the country and their love and respect for the fallen. And um, I saved some of those as well as some of the personalized homemade wreaths um, at at the end of the day, at midnight, they're taken off the plaza and recycled. So um, I would take certain gifts from those um, wreaths, and I still have them in my little treasure box. Um, so those memories just stay with me. And, and those letters um, really mean a lot to the tomb guards. Now, one final question about the tomb, and then I want to find out what you're doing these days, because things are still very interesting for you. You're not uh, laying low and enjoying the the luxurious life of a former tomb guard. But the significance of 21, you know, you mentioned 21 a couple times. Uh, the steps, I imagine, is 21 down and 21 back. 
Um, you know, I'm sure you guys had, you know, the 21 gun salute during uh, burials, perhaps. Um, so what is the significance of that 21? Yeah, the significance of the 21 gun salute, um, sometimes, I mean, according to Tomb of the Unknown Soldier um, training, um, it goes back to the Navy um, way back in the past um, when a Navy would sail into port, unless you had your, you know, your flag up or they recognized the ship the port maybe didn't know what ship that was. So usually um, at that time, the frigates had about seven cannons on each side of their bow. Um, the, the frigate or the ship would fire off seven blanks and the port could tell what a blank is and what a loaded full charge attack is. So those seven blasts render the ship empty on that side of the ship. Well, that was telling the ship that we come in peace and we're empty. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, boom, we're empty. Well, then usually the port would welcome them with 21 guns salute back, kind of an acknowledgement of, yeah, we see that you're here, you're empty, you're a, an ally or a friend, or at least you're not an enemy, but we could have wiped you out of, you know, out of the ocean if we wanted to. So they do a 21 gun um, blank return. And that was kind of a, you can come on in, you know, that kind of thing. So that then morphed into the 21-gun salute, which is usually seven um, rounds in three separate volleys. So it's three volleys, seven rounds each, equaling 21-gun salute. Usually, um, the sergeant in charge of the firing party will gather up some of those shells, three, one for each volley, and that will be put in the flag that's given to the family of the fallen. Um, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, because of that, 21 is my favorite number and it was so interesting that the centennial um celebration of the the dedication of the tomb of the unknown soldier fell on 2021 um but the tomb guard counts 21 seconds hours upon hours a day so you face washington dc um and you count 21 seconds you then turn down the mat you change your weapon from one shoulder to the other once you complete that weapons change um, that arms change. You then count another 21 seconds. At the end of 21 seconds, you start um, walking 21 seconds and 21 steps down the mat, turn and face DC again, and then count another 21 seconds. So we just try to kind of work 21 into everything that we do there, trying to show that that's the 21, um, you know, the highest salute that we can give the fallen uh, of the unknown. Um, then that leads to, again, the centennial, which just happened. And it was such a special time. And for the first time in over, uh, almost since the dedication, they allowed people to go on to the plaza um, just by droves, really, and lay roses, beautiful footage of just roses piled up on the, around the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Very beautiful time. Unfortunately, I couldn't go due to my current military service, um, which I can talk about even longer if, if that's all the questions about the tomb so. yeah so now you've moved away from that and i guess things have gotten quite interesting over the last year and a half so what have you been up to lately yeah um so a i'm still being humbled um so i'm still not 10 foot tall and bulletproof um in 2018 i thought you know what i i have more to more to give i'm a tomb guard and i can do anything so I had um, re-enlisted in the, United, uh, in the United States Army National Guard out here in California. One weekend a month, two weeks a year was what I was told. And um, I 
thought that I'm just going to become an officer. I went to officer candidate school. I ended up having some issues um, throughout the program um, and some things beyond my control, um, but I wasn't able to finish the program. And it's a long program, 18 months, two years. So I wasn't able to commission. And in um, early 2020, um, COVID was springing up. Um, I think I got sick, ended up not being able to continue with a run. Um, and I was released from the officer candidate program. So I um, became a supply specialist in the United States Army. Well, shortly about, a, about you know, COVID just happened. The whole world's kind of confused. Well, in January of 2021, I got activated for the COVID mission. Um, so for the last 11 months, I've been working first on a vaccination strike team um, in Los Angeles. My team helped vaccinate almost 250,000 people. And then after that, I went on a medical strike team and um, we were assisting different hospitals or COVID positive soldiers up north. And then finally finishing up with, um, you know, doing COVID testing up in Sacramento um, up there until November. So I just got off of that and um, thought I was all done, but um, looks like I've got an overseas deployment with the federal government um, on my horizon. So I can't talk too much about that, but um, that year's up January 2nd. So I, I told them, oh, no, I don't want to go. I'm, I, I'm all done. I've been on the COVID mission since January. I want to go home and enjoy some of that wonderful California, Southern California life that I've you know, been hearing about. And um, they said, no, you're going. So um, looks like God's not done with me yet. And I'm, I'm on my way overseas. So. so what's it been like? I mean, okay, someone like me and the rest of the public, you know, we, the, the joke is turn off the TV, turn off the news and COVID goes away. I mean, everything is inundated by politics these days. Everything is inundated by a political ideology. You know, this guy says that, well, the last president, we can't trust the virus and or the vaccine, yeah. the virus, you know, and so then they, the, the other guy gets in the office and I was like, oh, take it, you know. So everything is clouded by politics these days. Yep. There's all kinds of infighting. Social media has really kind of thrown a wrench into everything as far as information because everything's labeled misinformation, but is the misinformation the real information? I mean, it's just crazy out there because of, yep. you know, the news and, and social media and politics. So you on the front line actually being there, actually being a part of yep. battling this uh, disease, this virus that's been going around. Is there anything that you can tell us that's like legitimate about this that, that you saw from a, a real perspective that wasn't highlighted by politics or news, mainstream media trying to get uh, clicks and views? Yep. Um, well said, because so many, so much of America and, and even mainstream media is just about the clicks and the views. And they'll misconstrue anything just to get another view or another click. Um, and maybe not even misconstrue it to the wrong, you know, just misconstrue it, just something to get a click. Um, oddly enough, I was activated by President Trump on January 12th. And then one of the first executive orders from President Biden on January 20th was the continuation of our activation. So it's like, to me, my whole last 11 months is completely bipartisan. This is a plan brought up by our government who really does want the best for our citizens, like, you know, we, we want our country to thrive. And it's, it's a non, you know, bipartisan, or it is a bipartisan issue. Um, we were ordered that we couldn't really post or talk about being on mission. That has to do with um, the National Guard was activated throughout the country. Unfortunately, some soldiers had um, posted inappropriate things at um, funeral homes and different places. 
So um, as soldiers sometimes do. So we then came down under orders not to post anything. So we couldn't post anything for or against it type of a thing. Um, now, of course, I'm off those orders and I, I can speak about it. But um, honestly, it's like realizing that the vaccine had been in the works in the last administration, had come out during the last administration. I was one of the first to get it. I got it in January of 2021, um, way before my tier, you know, because first, if we remember, it seems like it was a lifetime ago. It was the, you know, um, any of immune compromised people and seniors, then they slowly backed it down. Well, the D Department of Defense, since they were sending us out to um, different um, senior citizen homes and then to vaccinate thousands upon thousands of people, they wanted us to have the vaccine too. So um, I ended up getting in January and my thoughts were, you know, I have seven doses of anthrax vaccine in me. I think I'll take the crazy COVID-19 vaccine. I don't think anybody's trying to implant me with anything crazy. Um, so, but it was interesting to see, especially while the tiers were up, the actually hundreds, if not thousands of people that were trying to jump line from the tiers, because it was important. We had people coming in that hadn't been out of their homes for almost a year. Um, it, it, it was actually sad. Um, a lot of older people, the seniors that were terrified. Um, you would tell them to stop and they would hit the gas because they hadn't driven in 10 months. Um, we had big barricades up to protect us and we would just let them off the barricades and, oh, put it in park, turn off your vehicle, sir. You're going to make it. And, and we were excited to be able to help those people. Now, most of my family hasn't been vaccinated on the East Coast. And um, unfortunately, all of them have now been getting probably the new Delta strain of, of coronavirus. Um, so I got quite angry with them because I love them. And I'm like, hey, I, your, your brother, I've been working 18 hour days, six days a week, helping people that I don't even know get vaccinated, almost 250,000. And my own family isn't even caring about this. Like you could have got this vaccine that's free. It's a free, you know, it's a free vaccine, you know, created or at least paved the way by Trump and, you know, being pushed by Biden. Um, but it is so political, and that's the sad part about it, because um, protection shouldn't be a political thing. And, and our and patriotic, you know, our patriotic service to our country shouldn't be a political thing, should never be politicized. But we should just try to um, do what's best for all generations. Because, you know, I've, I've, I'm kind of of the belief that if it wasn't politicized, there'd be a lot more people out there that are vaccine hesitant right now that would get it. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the politics has played into it. You know, being kind of out there on the front lines, okay, again, the, the stuff we see on the news um, is a lot how a lot of us get the information about what's out there. You know, we're not in a position like you where, you know, what you mentioned, 250,000 people that you got to vaccinate, but you got to see 250,000 people and what their experience was. You probably heard a little bit about them, like some people haven't been out of the house in over a year. Um, I've heard a couple of people that I knew that were kind of in a similar situation. You know, they order their groceries in, they wipe it down. Yep. But being out there... Um, is, is, is that the realistic, um, what's being portrayed as far as people being so fearful and, and now are they becoming, have you seen people start to become freer because there's vaccines and there's other protocols in place that are trying to get people kind of back to the so-called normal? Are you starting to see a change in, in people's minds? Um, I would like to think so. It, it's like when you go to the mall, it seems busy, you know, and it, it seems crowded, but like you go to the movie theaters and it's empty. It's a ghost town or you go to, um, you know, the grocery stores and people are still wearing their masks and 
Um, and it's like, well, maybe that person doesn't have the vaccine or maybe that person is COVID positive and doesn't want to give me um, COVID. Uh, the reality is, is as the, I think it'll take a while for the fear to subside. And I, I'm not sure exactly, like we hear about people even that have gotten the vaccine that are getting sick. Um, and I think that's where then people, we've always been sick. I've been working every day of, of the week, pretty much for the last two years. And I know probably you have too, and much of your listeners, it's like, and I think I got COVID in January of 2020 when it was just coming out, I got really sick for a week, which would explain why then I probably haven't got it since then. And my wife got sick for three weeks during that time. So, and we both have been now COVID free. And that was before we were, you could test for antibodies and, you know, it's actually not easy to test for antibodies. So, um, but thankfully I've never gotten COVID. A bunch of my friends who worked in COVID positive hospitals, they had declined the vaccine because they thought that that vaccine could have been used better for an elderly person. Well, there was enough vaccine for everybody. So our sergeant ended up telling them, look, dude, this is your vaccine. This is Department of Defense vaccine for soldiers. It's never going to go to an older person. It's never you declining it is not helping anybody else. And my friend said, well, you know, but I'm not worried about it. I've been in COVID hospitals for a year and a half and I didn't get sick. Um, but it seems like COVID doesn't have a real respecter of persons. It just comes up at any time and sometimes in the weirdest ways. So I figured take the vaccine while I could. <laughs> so during your time, you know, cause you've had a, a vast military career, you've gone from like the tomb to, um, and Arlington, which is one completely different aspect. I mean, that's on the other end of the spectrum as far as military service goes. And then you have now you're kind of like on the front lines, kind of leading the charge here at home against uh, one of the most devastating things that we've come up against. Um, do they correlate with each other or does your experience, can you, I guess, can you rely on one experience versus mm. the other or are they completely different? And do you get a whole different perspective on the world based on which type of service you're, you're doing? I think they're, they are a little different. Um, I thought that this would be easy after the tomb, but I'm 20, almost 20 years older. You know, I guess I'm 15 years older and um, now I have, you know, my wife, civilian world because I thought this was just a part-time job. So it went from, yeah, 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 this is just a part-time job that I can do to, oh my gosh, this is my full-time job. And oh my goodness, this is difficult. These are long hours. This, the lines don't end. Our, our biggest day, I think we vaccinated 7,000 people in one day, averaging roughly three to um, 5,000 a day through our, um, our mega site. But you know, it just never ended. Again, sometimes 18-hour days, and just exhaustion and realizing like, maybe, you know, the tomb prepared me for this to be happy and up, you know, yay, you guys made it. You know, we were always trying to make it a, um, an exciting adventure for the people coming in. Cause there, during that time, there's so much fear. People are like, Oh my gosh, I don't know if I want to get the shot. And we're like, what do you mean? You don't know. It's a vaccine. You know, <laughs> it's going to help you. That's all it is. It's going to help you. So we would, you know, try to have a festive, wonderful, you know, upbeat attitude for them. And um, maybe the long hours served at the tomb helped with that. But again, my age slowed me down a little bit. But um, we we're surrounded by other wonderful, you know, soldiers and, and civilians, travel nurses, volunteers, people that weren't getting paid. You know, again, we were getting paid. And then there was volunteers there that would come and volunteer just to, 
to help out their fellow Americans. And I think it's inspiring really to see really what our country can do because we did roll out a vaccine, mobilize it, get it out to the America by the hundreds of millions of shots. Literally, if anybody wants it, they can get it. Um, and if those who don't want it, like my family, they don't need to get it. And thankfully, they're you know still now have the natural antibodies. So it's been an interesting road, and I don't think it's done yet. <laughs> I think yeah. it's going to be a little while longer. Yeah, you mentioned okay, your your next thing is overseas, but um, as you look even further into the future, um, you plan on sticking with the uh, military for a foreseeable future, or you? Because I know you do other things. You've got like I mentioned earlier, yeah. you've you've produced a, a pod, uh, not a podcast, a documentary about the tomb, yep. and so I know you know media. You've been a part of the media aspect and production, and you've got some other projects uh, that you've worked on. So, where's life? Do you think going to take you? Prayerfully, um, it's going to be going right back to Hollywood. So my contract with the National Guard is up in 2023. I'm not planning on re-enlisting. I give them two separate contracts, one on active duty, one in the National Guard. Um, after this deployment, I'm just going to, I'm working on building a TV show. I'll be filming in Northern New York um, if all goes well. And then um, we just actually came out with a new four-part docuseries as well called Honor Guard. That's on um, Amazon, Apple TV, and Google Play. And then also this year around active duty, I was able to be a military advisor on a couple of different movies. Um, one was for um, the terminal list with Chris Pratt. That'll be coming out next year on Amazon. And I was their cer- military ceremonial advisor. You can see where the connection is. I was the funeral advisor for um, Channing Tatum's directorial debut dog, which comes out in February. You'll want to watch that. It looks amazing. If you look closely, you'll see that I'm the head of the casket team. Um, at the end of the movie, it'll be very special in the New Mexico National Guard for that one. And that's called Dog. That comes out February. So um, definitely, if all goes well, we're going to be creating some wonderful movies. And now it's going to be or, and TV shows in 2023. 2022 will be overseas. <laughs> so, so how much do they listen to you as far as being the advisor? Do they take to heart what you say or do they just be like, nah, we're going to do Hollywood the way Hollywood wants to do Hollywood? <laughs> So on the terminal list, um, we, unfortunately, I mean, great question, but on the terminal list, um, the, the story is Chris Pratt's whole Navy SEAL team gets killed in Syria. So they're at a, you know, a black site aircraft, um, airport um, hangar, and all his friends, I think 12 Navy guys are lined up in caskets, transfer cases. Well, we have production meetings. And um, the director asked if this is how it would look. And I made mention that that is how it looks. Make sure it's not caskets because the script said caskets. It has to be transfer cases, totally different looking shape and boxes. And I said, and if they were actually all killed and blown up, um, potentially one could actually have blood dripping out of it because it's not a pretty sight when soldiers die. And that is what happens. Um, And the director said, we're not going to have that on this movie, it's PG-13. Thank you very much for that information. And I said, I wouldn't have it either. I was just sharing how it actually happened. And um, that meant a lot to me because he didn't dismiss me in a horrible way, but he he just said as an artist, that's not the look that they were looking for. And I perfectly agree. And that's what's interesting is oftentimes people say, oh, they got this wrong, they got that wrong. Well, only 0.01% of maybe veterans would see that point wrong. And they know they got that wrong. And those are either artistic choices or even kind of a respect for 
the people that serve. You know, there's a saying like, oh, well, we don't want the uniforms perfect because this actor didn't earn that uniform. So we'll make a little mistake so that people will know that's kind of a, a Hollywood misnomer that doesn't really happen. The reality is that when you book from wardrobe, you know, so on the terminal list, I went for fitting because I was a Marine. I got a enlisted Marines uniform and they had put a officer Marines award on me. It was sewn on. By the time you go from fitting to seeing that to set, it's too late. And nobody except the one Navy guy watching it on Zoom is going to say, ah, wait, wait, that's the wrong medals with that. So, but they really do try. And that's why they had us, you know, me and my business partner, Neil, there as a ceremonial advisors. And they took all our advice on the different um, ceremonial aspects of the um, very somber scene. Looking forward to seeing that late 2022. Now, one final thing I want to ask you, if you don't mind answering. So you've mentioned faith a couple of times and, and God leading your way. How has your faith and how has God played a part in all this? I mean, like I said, you've had some pretty emotional and pretty uh, deep, um, you know, military service when it comes to, I mean, I can't even, like you say, the emotion of being behind uh, a casket team or burial team at Arlington and having to watch the family and the emotions of the family, you know, burying a loved one. And then now you're on the front lines with COVID and you're dealing with a fear uh, the, of, in the people and you're dealing with, you know, something that is literally causing death and you're dealing with, you know, a pandemic that has instilled in people all kinds of emotions. And so, I mean, you could really start to get into this mental mm -hmm. state of like, you know, what is, I mean, a deep mental state really with all this kind of negative stuff that you're seeing and experiencing. Um, so how has your faith kind of fit in there to kind of, because talking to you, you're upbeat, you're happy, you're cheerful, you don't have really any negative things going on, you don't seem down. So I would imagine that you'd have to rely heavily on your faith here. Um. Very wise and astute question. Um, I am by nature a happy, upbeat guy. Um, I have definitely been filled with a lot of anger in the in the past year. Um, long long days, long hours. Um, you know, kind of embarrassed to share. Probably, really, my wife and her family and my family are the only ones that really see it. And so, my soldier friend, my sergeant, had to pull me aside one day and said, "Do you need a day off, Morse? You seem a little angry." And I was like, "No, I'm fine. I'm not angry." Um, so as a Christian, like we were in church on Sunday and I was sitting there thinking like, why am I angry? Cause I know, you know, who holds the future. I know that my steps are all orchestrated ahead of time. I'm not scared really for, of COVID, not scared of overseas deployment, really not scared of anything. So, I, you know, why would I be angry? And I guess I would just say that I'm still a work in progress, um, because I, I've definitely not handled everything correctly, um, especially this year. Um, yeah, and I guess I'll probably kind of end at that, that I do rely heavily on actually just praying, praying for the strength to actually do well, um, praying to actually be a good example to my friends, which I don't, I mean, I know they all love me in the military, that all my squads, but I don't know necessarily if I'm pointing them towards, you know, joy, um, eternal salvation and, you know, actual, um, you know, contentedness, um, because me personally, I, I want so much more of the Hollywood dream, Hollywood dream, and it's right out of reach. And then I'm, you know, orders get extended. And now orders go overseas. And it's like, you're still out of reach.
but yet God has still given me different film projects throughout this year while on active duty that worked around my already planned vacation time. I just filmed an HBO, you know, um, TV show last week, actually, that I wasn't even planning on. It just the doors opened up. They were looking for some military guys, um, some guys with some experience with marching. I was able to get it. And I'd just gotten home from the COVID mission. Uh, my wife was upset that I went and filmed for two days, but it was awesome because it, it worked. It worked into our schedule. And um, those are the little gifts that I realized I'm not even in control of all the things that happen on this earth. Just have to keep taking one step at a time. Ethan Morris has been with us. And uh, again, we started talking about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which 2021 is the 100th year. And then talking about a little bit on the uh, front line of the pandemic. And uh, again, you've got some some stuff ahead of you as far as military goes. But but again, can you just kind of give us, uh, you mentioned the, the TV shows and stuff you worked on, kind of give us that list again in case people are interested in wanting to uh, check them out? Yep. If they want to check it out, um, my first award-winning documentary, as you mentioned, was The Unknown. That's about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, you can find that um, on DVD, Blu-ray at Arlington National Cemetery or on, on Amazon.com. And then it streams on Apple TV, um, Tubi um, for free, Google Play, and um, also iTunes, I believe it is, and, um, and Amazon. And then our latest is a four-part docuseries called Honor Guard. We actually dug into other regiments at the Arlington National Cemetery, the Old Guard, um, the Quezon with horses, the United States Army Drill Team, the history of the Old Guard, as well as the U.S. Army Drill Team. And um, or, I'm sorry. And, and then also the casket team. And those four were all narrated by Academy Award nominee Sam Elliott, who um, gifted us with his amazing voice and mustache. But you can't see his mustache as a narrator, but you can kind of hear it through the through the microphone. And um, those are all on um, streaming sites as well. Well, Ethan, thanks so much for your time. I know you've uh, got had a busy schedule and you've got limited time off, but we appreciate you. And uh, again, I know it's uh, it's not uh, everything that we can give, but thank you so much for your service for everything that you've done. You know, we truly appreciate it, and we look forward to uh, even down the road. Uh, not only these projects that you're working on, but eventually when you get back into Hollywood, getting some uh, some of those projects rolling. We look forward to seeing those. And again. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us here today. Thank you, Sal. I really appreciate it very much. Have a wonderful day. You bet. And for those of you watching and listening, hey, thanks for listening. Do tell a friend. This is Two Steps Ahead Podcast. Again, encouraging you to take your passion, make it happen, let yourself be great. Uh, anything, If well, I guess you don't really have social media, do you, or anything like that that people can go to? Nothing crazy. Um, you can find me on Facebook and um, I believe Instagram a little bit, but um, just Ethan A. Morse. And um, unfortunately, again, with the military, yeah. we're not allowed to post much that's relevant with our lives. <laughs> and and for us, uh, Two Steps Ahead, uh, the show, Two Steps Ahead, TWO, Two Steps Ahead podcast on Instagram, and my personal one, Edom Rocks, E-I-D-E-M-R-O-C-K-S, at Instagram as well. And then anything and everything is RadioWarp.com. That's Radio W-A-R-P.com. Once again, Ethan, thanks so much. We appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to uh, what you got going on down the road. And uh, for the rest of you, we'll see you next time.